Hands up if you've ever used OkCupid as an apartment finding service. And then her face had an expression I had never seen before. It will be in the divorce papers ultimately, but right now it's still adorable. I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and this is the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Media. Today's theme is thin ice. We're going to hear from three people who found themselves on that pond and managed to skate away. Just a heads up, this episode is full of the colorful language that you or I might use in our own thin ice situations and includes some scenarios that might not be kid-friendly. So pop those earbuds in for this one. First up, we hear from Earl Miller. His story begins on a cold sidewalk outside an AA meeting in Springfield and ends up in a much different place. So hands up if you've ever used OkCupid. Let's honestly check for just a second. Hands up if you've ever used OkCupid as an apartment finding service. Less so. Um, The worst three months of my life start with me uh, calling the last number in my phone. I have couch surfed my way through my feed on OkCupid, and now I am calling ex-girlfriends, which is a shameful, shameful way to spend an evening. I'm on the phone with Cindy. Uh, Cindy and me had had a tumultuous love affair. Um, we lived at her mom's for a little bit. There was a lot of cocaine. It didn't, it didn't go great. Um, and we had left uh, when I couldn't do any more cocaine. I had really worn myself out. And I'm on the phone with Cindy, and I'm telling her that I love her. I'm a different guy now. Things are going to be, hey, no more drugs. Um, I'm not, I'm lying. I'm going to do more drugs. Um, But I'm telling her this because I really need a place to stay. She's the last person. And Cindy had broken up with me ultimately to join the circus. Not as a performer. Uh, That would have been nice. Uh, She sold snow cones at the Biggie. It was a thing. It was a thing in her life. It was a place. Um, And I tell her these heartfelt words, and Cindy laughs and hangs up, which was the appropriate response to what I was saying. And so I walk into Forest Park. If you've ever just become homeless, you learn that finding a spot to sleep is just kind of like looking for an apartment. All the good ones are gone. And so I walk through Forest Park and every picnic table and every bench has a person on it or a person next to it who clearly is not looking for a neighbor. And I I keep walking. And if you walk through Forest Park long enough, uh, you end up at a duck pond. And I thought, well, there's nobody here at the duck pond. This seems like a wonderful place to be. I, I've, I've, I've hit the mother load. Um, and so I lay my head down, and I close my eyes. And I think when I was a kid, my mom used to have duck knickknacks. And, and maybe this is good luck. A couple duck facts uh, for you real quick. Uh, ducks fucking suck. <laughs> All of them. All of them everywhere. They shouldn't exist. They're shit animals. They're bad. They defecate in the water they drink. No animal that does that should, should live. They're also, trivia fact, nocturnal, which means that they, they, they quack all night, every night, and I'm slowly becoming insane. Uh, 90 days after this duck adventure uh, had dragged on, um, I was at a 12-step meeting. I don't think I'm allowed to say the name technically. I think the first, the second part of the name says, anyway. So I'm at a 12-step meeting, and I'm telling my hard luck story to a bunch of other people who have pretty bad hard luck stories, so it's not really helping. And this 
this very strange woman appears. She is in, I don't, I don't know what you call it. Uh, I don't know what white people call it. It was like a hippie moo-moo. It's, it's like, she's in Birkenstocks. She's not from where I'm from. Uh, she has a belt on with a Walkman attached to it. No pants, just a, just a floating belt for her Walkman. <laughs> Giant headphones. And she, she smells like the shittiest weed I have ever smelled. And it, you, that is definitely not something you're allowed to do before this meeting. And she hears my story and she says, hey, I got a place you can stay. And I think, this is how unsolved mysteries start. This is how, this is how you never get out of jail. So, but I'm, I'm out of options. And if I see another duck, I'm going to kill myself. So I say, you know what? I'll go to Jen's house. And Jen's house is this, uh, this tiny little one-bedroom apartment. And Jen does something for me that's really magical. Um, A, she doesn't make me do any of the things I'd have to do when I was homeless. Quick aside again. Being homeless for me was like making a list of all the things you won't do and then just checking them off every day, the kind of mundane horror of that. My hands have done things that, that haunt me. When I sleep, I'm still homeless. But I wasn't homeless anymore, I'm at Jen's. And Jen smokes shitty weed all day and listens to fish all day and sometimes just disappears. Jen disappears for weeks. I don't know where Jen is. Sometimes Jen's daughter shows up. I, I have three-quarter custody of Jen's daughter. I'm raising this kid. This is, a, this is a real relationship. Jen loves me, though. Jen loves me in a way that I've, I've never felt in my life. She is honest in her love for me. She tells me things are going to be okay, and then she tells me that's a lie. It's an honesty you don't get from many folks. Sometimes I wake up and Jen's in my bed, and it's not even a sexual thing. Jen just smokes really shitty weed, and sometimes they spray it with roach stuff, and you just wake up where you wake up. So I'm at Jen's for six months, and I'm a Holyoke boy. Glad to have you all here. I wouldn't clap, because the second part of this is going to, yeah. And like a lot of Holyoke boys, you know, I have a first date with a girl. It goes so well, we go pick up my stuff. I move in right up the street, right up the way at Lyman Terrace. I move in with this girl. And when I'm leaving Jen, she goes, I'll leave the bed out for you for a little bit, which is a reasonable decision for her to make. Um, and I move in with this woman, and whatever. A year later, 12 years ago, two days ago, uh, my daughter Valencia, Beatrice Bossy Miller is born. And I didn't even know I was capable of doing anything good. I didn't know that there was anything like that in me. And I'm holding this little person, right? I cut her umbilical cord. What the, who lets me do that? Who, I mean, Jen let me watch her kid, but Jen wouldn't let anybody watch her kid. It wasn't a high bar. And I hold this baby, and I think, I know what I need to do. And so two weeks after she's born, she's 42 weeks, so she's basically born like three months old. She's big, <laughs> giant Miller head. It was a C-section. It was awful. Don't look over the tent. You'll die. It's bad. So I take her to Forest Park, and I take her to the duck pond, and I hold this thing that's the best thing I ever did the best thing I ever did. And I look out and there's these ducks flying and I think, fuck you, ducks. <laughs> fuck you, and I hope you all die. <laughs> I did something good. 
And then I take that baby to Jen's house. And uh, Jen is high, because Jen's high. <laughs> Jen likes to be high. And she's sitting on her couch, and I hand her my baby, and she tells my daughter that it's going to be okay. And I think she's probably lying at that point, because if you haven't caught the vibe, there was no reason to think that things were going to be okay. But it was the first time where I kind of believed that maybe it would be okay. And she, she hands me my baby back, and, and I look at her, and I think, I'm going to figure out how to be the type of person where you don't ever have to worry about living next to the duck pond. And my life has been a series of just trying to be okay enough to help somebody else not have to end up at the duck pond. And every year, on my daughter's birthday, we'll do it next weekend in New York where she lives with her mom, uh, we, we go for a car ride, we listen to fish. It sucks, I'm sorry. If you like fish, they're a terrible band. It goes on and on, ad infinitum, it goes nowhere. There's solos right after a solo. It's musically disgusting. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. But we'll listen to fish, and I'll tell her about the duck pond and why ducks are fucking awful animals, and they should all be exterminated. Thank you for having me. That was Earl Miller. And what I love about Earl's story is that it reminds us of the importance of those friendships that give you exactly what you need at exactly the right time. We all need a Jen in our lives. Earl is a dad from Holyoke. He's working on reimagining public safety in the town of Amherst. And hopefully for us, he's working on his next story for the Valley Voices stage. Our next story comes from Tony Noons, who describes himself as a Taurus with a Scorpio rising. Don't worry, guys, I did a little research because my astrology skills should really be better than they are. So you know, the rising sign makes Taurus a bit more emotional than the usual Taurus, assertive and determined, with occasional obsessive tendencies. Tony shares this sign with Enrique Iglesias, Janet Jackson, and Sid Vicious. Keep that in mind as he brings you with him to the doctor's office. So I'm in the waiting room of my doctor's office. Now, the reason I'm there is because a week earlier, I was sitting in a meeting about a meeting discussing another meeting. Um, very productive. And I felt like someone had poured cold ice water down my back. And I thought, that's not an STD I'm used to. Um, <laughs> You know what happens. So I, uh, seven days later, I go to my doctor's office, and I'm, I'm in the waiting room, and I realize, for me, when other people have anxiety, it makes me get into mode. I have to help them get through it. So there are two women in the waiting room, and they're absolutely terrified. So I sit down next to them, and I say, you know, 98% or more times you come to the doctor, it's nothing. That's a made-up number. But it, numbers help people, so I do it, right? I'm there to help. So I get called into the doctor's office, and I, I, I go back, and I say, listen, I think I need an x-ray because my back still feels weird. Now, they asked me what happened last time, and I said, well, listen, I went to the emergency room when I had that weird thing seven days ago, and the doctor said it was probably my back, and he said, I'm going to give you some muscle relaxants. And before he even told me what the pills were for, I had taken them. And I had to warn the doctor, listen, if I find a pill in a parking lot, I will take it. 
So if you're gonna be giving stuff out, let's just be cautious, shall we? So he, um, I had to then confess this to my current doctor, and she's like, that sounds like you. And I was like, perfect, we understand each other. She sent me down to get an x-ray, and when I go down to get an x-ray, there's a woman there eating a oats and honey Nature Valley granola bar that is doing the x-rays, and I thought, oh, I don't wanna bother her. She's obviously very heavy into nutrition. So she says, come on in, we do an x-ray, and she says, are you headed home after this x-ray, or are you going upstairs? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm headed home. They said they'd call on Monday if there was any problem. And she goes, oh, you're not going anywhere. I said, syphilis, <laughs> probably. She said, no, and she turned the screen so I could see that I had no left lung. And I said, where's my left lung? <laughs> and she said, probably up here somewhere. And I said, that's impossible, because we all know 98% or higher, <laughs> nothing's wrong. They sent me back upstairs, and I had to have an ambulance come and get me. Totally embarrassing. So they lay me down on a stretcher, and my doctor goes, you're not presenting as if someone that doesn't have a lung functioning. And I was like, sorry? I don't, I, what, what do you say in that? Sorry about the lung? So they put me on a stretcher, and then they take me through where I told people not to worry. So I wave. I tried to explain to them, listen, this isn't normal. I said, I just don't have a lung. <laughs> just don't have a lung. Now I have to do the most terrifying part of all, which is I have to call my husband from the ambulance. My husband was working in DC at the time, and my husband, God love him, panics. He thinks I'm constantly on the edge of death, and we're all constantly on the edge of Armageddon, right? So now I have to call him, and I decide to word it slightly differently, and I say, listen, I'm going to visit the hospital. <laughs> it seems I've misplaced my lung. They think they know where it is. I need you to come home and take care of the dogs. And I said, I can't talk about it now. My phone's running out. That's a lie. Talk to you later. Hang up. I get to the emergency room and no one can believe that I'm the person without a functioning lung. A hot, hot, hot emergency room guy comes in, which is always the case when I look my worst. And he says, listen, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna actually take this and we're gonna plunge it through your chest and it's gonna actually inhale and it's gonna be really painful, but we have to do that. And I said the one thing I thought I would never say to a hot guy, a hot guy which is, please don't penetrate me. <laughs> which is weird for me to say that. So, <sighs> I get sent up to the room finally in the middle of the night and I decide in the morning, get dressed and get some coffee, right? Because there's a little cafe in the basement. I have a box that's attached to this cord coming out of my chest that's gurgling every time I inhale. So I slip that into my messenger box, my messenger bag, put it on my chest, go down, grab a coffee. I'm like, I need a vente. I'm taking orders for the nurses. All of that's fine, absolutely fine. My husband arrives the next day and Again, his anxiety makes him a little self-focused. It's absolutely adorable. It will be in the divorce papers ultimately, but right now it's still adorable. And he says to me as he walks in like this, Ooh, hi, I stubbed my toe really bad at the house and I don't, it's really painful. 
I have tubes coming out of my chest. So I say, would you like me to ring the, nur ring the nurse? Maybe the surgeon can come talk to you before they reinflate my lungs. Well, the, the decision was I needed surgery because the hole wasn't repairing itself. And just so you know, nurses fucking rock. Because if you... Stop it. Stop. So nurses fucking rock. Because if you respect nurses who actually run the shit, they do fun things for you. So they would hang out with me. But then they also, when I needed help bathing, were like, let's get Ricardo. And I thought, that really sounds good to me. I don't know what we're doing. Ricardo came up and Ricardo was gonna help me, but he has to remove his shirt because he's so muscular and beautiful that they don't have the scrubs that fit him. Sad face. So Ricardo helps me and calls me bro and shit, which is a total aphrodisiac for me. So after the surgery, I go down to get more coffee, right? I'm like, let's hit the coffee. And the gay boy that works at the counter flags, waves to me to come to him. And I, I'm a little shocked because like, if you're gay and you're under 30, you probably don't even see me. Like I don't exist. Like you think clothes are floating here right now, right? <laughs> so I, um, I say, what? And he goes, hey, listen, you know, last time you were here, um, we got a complaint. And I said, what? And they said, well, we got a complaint because someone thought it was disgusting that you would come into the cafe at the hospital with your gurgle box in your messenger bag. And I said, really? And he goes, mm-hmm, and she's here. She's right behind you. Oh, cherub. And I say, excellent. So I approach the woman, and I decide the best way to handle this. I walk up to her and I say, hi, can I talk to you just for a second? <laughs> I wanted to tell you that, you know, I looked over at you the other day and you really remind me of my mom. <laughs> and um, it was the last place I was with her and we used to come down and get coffee. <laughs> and uh, I don't have much time left. So it's really nice to see a friendly face. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> At home, I didn't realize the emotional toll, right? I looked in the mirror when I got home, and for some reason, after I was taking my clothes off, which is just not a fun thing, in the full mirror, I could see all of the scars. And I burst out crying, actually. And I said, you're older. You're broken now. You're going to always be broken now. Thank you. Oh, Cherub, we're all a little bit broken. But you, you know how to really liven up a room, even with a gurgle box in your messenger bag. <laughs> This is the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Media. I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and I've got one more story for you today from our Southern charmer, Julia Mitchell. But before we hear from Julia, a quick reminder for storytelling fans, you can do this too. Our Valley Voices story slams bring all kinds of stories to the stage and the podcast. 
find out how to audition, watch our video shorts, and get tickets to our next show at nepm.org slash valleyvoices. All right, next, you're invited to spaghetti dinner at Julia's house, where a phone call from the hospital changes everything. Nobody in my traditional Southern family knew my sister was expecting until we received a phone call from an emergency room doctor interrupting spaghetti night. (laughs) My mother took the phone call, and she was listening intently. And then her face had an expression I had never seen before. Was it sadness? No. Was it anger? No, I really had no idea. My mother was having a very hard time dealing in that moment, realizing she had now had a daughter that had just given birth to a baby, and she had been living in our house for the last six months, and none of us knew. (laughs) This pretty much shook my parents to the core. Now, my parents' parenting style might be described as semi-loving dictator. (laughs) And my older sister was their best subject. She followed all the rules. Well, except one, she didn't follow that one, but she followed most of the rules. And so my parent, their parenting style went from being a dictator to all of a sudden, they were doing everything by committee. Now committee meant they asked the neighbors, They ask their friends. They ask the hospital chaplain at the hospital my sister was at that they had never met before, and he was Jewish, (laughs) what they should do about my sister's situation. They even began to ask me, and I was totally surprised by that. We were never asked our opinion in the house. And I was a little emboldened by having my opinion asked for all the time over the last few days, and it felt good. And so while we were in the waiting room that day, we were sitting there, and, and I just used my newfound power to blurt out and say, my sister should not marry that boy. My parents sat motionless, barely breathing. I knew I had crossed a line but I wasn't sure what it was, but I really believed that truth was the currency that adults traded in. (laughs) So I continued. And I said, also, we need to talk about this baby. I think she should put it up for adoption. I was 13 years old at the time. And definitely somebody you want to take life advice from. (laughs) And I gave this whole justification. My sister is only 19 years old. She had a full scholarship to the university. She was by far the brightest of all of us. My parents sat there and listened. But I could feel the last week All the angst in the house was definitely pointing toward my sister, but I could feel it begin to shift and turn toward me. And this is where I did something stupid. 
again, I thought truth was the right way to go. And so as we sat there, I said, and by the way, I need to tell you something, mom and dad. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> now, this may seem funny to you, but I was 13 years old in Alabama. And I then said, you know those New Yorker magazines that you found in my room? It's, it's not just for the cartoons, I read the articles. And I thought this was a secret I was gonna take to my grave. That same face my mother had had on spaghetti night returned. My father had his own face, this now crestfallen that it was, but his had a definite tinge of anger. He sat silently for what I thought was an eternity. I did not know what got me kicked off the committee that had been formed to make the life decisions for my sister, but one of those three decisions got me kicked off. The next week became a blur. Decisions were being made, plans were being laid, conversations were being had, but I had no idea what was going on. On Thursday, there was a dress laid out on my bed. Next to it were my most uncomfortable church shoes, and there was a note that said, come home from school, be dressed by 4.30, make sure your little sister is clean. Are we going out to visit relatives in this situation? What was going on? I had no idea. About that time, the doorbell rang, and there were two people at the door, my, our pastor, and a man and wife I had never seen before, but they all three had the spaghetti face on. <laughs> and immediately I thought, someone has died. Who has died? Right after that, the doorbell rang again, and there was a boy that was standing there. It looked like the boy that my sister had dated for the last year, except the boy standing there looked about a 1,000 years older and he had his own indecipherable expression on his face. And I thought, all of a sudden, this young man has no idea my parents have formed a committee that have made all the decisions in his life over the last week. And in that moment, I felt sorry for him. And the person my parents had made to be the villain in the story became the sympathetic character. It wasn't until that exact moment that I realized what was about to happen in our house. A wedding was gonna happen in our living room that day. And I panicked and I ran to my sister's room. I got to the door and I said, you do not have to do this. There is not one happy person up in that room. <laughs> and we can figure a way out of this. Again, I don't know why she didn't trust a 13-year-old to make her life plan, but she looked at me in this face of horror. I heard my father's footsteps before I heard his voice, 
But then that deep baritone down the hallway came out and he said, Julia, your sister has made a mistake that we will all pay for. You have shown us this week that you do not have the moral character that we expect in this family and you are no longer like us. And just like that, I became an outsider in my own family. I was the sympathetic character that now got turned into the villain. That night, all the guests left. I went to the pan pantry, I pulled out noodles, I pulled out sauce, and I made spaghetti for myself for the first time in my life. I sat down at the kitchen table and I openly read the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> and I sat there and I thought, you know, they're right. A baby really changes everything. Hey, Julia, we're having spaghetti tomorrow night at my house, and you are more than welcome to come eat with us. Julia Mitchell told me she finds telling stories about her family is cheaper and more productive than therapy. That's our show for you today. We'll be back in a few weeks with three new stories, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a thing. Want to keep up outside of your feed? Join our Facebook group, Valley Storytelling Community, or send us a note at valleyvoices at nepm.org and we'll add you to our mailing list. Valley Voices Story Slam is produced by New England Public Media and the Academy of Music. Special thanks to our friends at the Divine Theater at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke, where the stories you heard today were first told live. This show is produced by Katie Wright for New England Public Media. See you next time. Now.